0: Projector is not working, since there's no words up on there today for you to follow along. So we're going to make it through. Turn to Acts chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 26 today. 17:26. we're going to wrap up this section of the book of Acts, and I shared with you the last couple of weeks. This is one of my favorite parts of all of scripture, where Paul goes into Athens and He's all alone, and and yet his heart is just for people. He's been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. He was a self-righteous Pharisee, a hypocrite, and on the road to Damascus, his job, he was actually headed to Damascus to persecute Christians. That's what he was, or followers of the way, and he was headed there to persecute them, and he was really good at what he did. He was the one who was in charge of, from the Pharisees, from the Sanhedrin, to persecute followers of Jesus, and he's miraculously saved himself, and proceeds then to become, Jesus said, you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and we we'll see how that's working out, historically how it worked out, as we study in the book of Acts, a book of history of the early church, and as we look at it, we're seeing what he's doing, so now he is at Athens. We've looked at it the last couple of weeks and he's all alone. If you'll take your hand out, I want you to look at the top of them and jump down to where we are to verse 26. We talked about Paul meeting the Athenians, and this is the, the key in what we're looking at as we look at his witness at Athens. He met these Athenians where they were physically, he went to the synagogue, he went to the marketplace, the Agora. And he went to Mars Hill, where everybody, where the philosophers just simply met, <coughs> to discuss and to talk about new philosophies. And as he's walking around Athens, literally, he did not, this was not part of his missionary journey per se, who was sitting next week, he was at Athens, waiting on Silas and Timothy, and Luke to get there so that they can move on to Corinth. Well, while he's at Athens, he just goes out into the marketplace, he goes to the synagogue, and he goes to the marketplace, and he just where people are, and he sees them. And as he's walking around Athens, he's just overwhelmed and grieved in his spirit, when he sees the satanic grip on this city philosophically and religiously, that they had statue after statue, and idol after idol, 30,000 is estimated, public idols in the city of Athens at this point in time in history. And they still had one. They had, had many at one time. We're not going to go back and go over all that. But they had one left to quote the unknown God. In case they left anybody out, they had a generic God just to cover their bases. And so it grieves him because he knows out of 30,000 public idols, To these gods that they worship, whether it was Aphrodite, and of course we'll see a temple for her, and we get to Corinth we'll see another magnificent temple, and and whoever their god might be, out of thirty thousand of them, how many of them were real? None. None. There's only one God. Paul knew that. He'd been redeemed by that God. He knew Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, and he knew all these people at Athens and throughout Greece and the Roman Empire, with their God after God after God, that they needed desperately to meet the known God. And so we saw last week, and he comes to them and says, to the God, I saw your statue to the unknown God, and him, I see you're very religious, and he was complimentary that they were seeking truth. And he says, I see you have a statue to the unknown God, him that you worship in ignorance, not knowing. Let me declare him to you. Let me share with you the God who is real, the God I know, the God that I've experienced, and the God that you are seeking without knowing. And so he began That's where we were last week in verse 22. Let's just start there. We'll read down to verse 26, and then we'll pick it up there. 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens. And Areopagus was the court where they discussed the philosophical and educational things that he's there meeting with, with these men, these philosophers. And he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. You are seeking God. God. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, plural, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he's proclaiming now the known God to them. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. This is what we talked about last week. He begins with, and he says to them, the truth that you are seeking about who is God, these are built in part of, who we are as human beings, that God places within us a desire to know truth. We'll talk about more, more about that in a moment. So he begins to declare that God to them, this known God. And he says, first of all, he's the creator of the universe. If, if nothing else, you know by if you're not taking an honest examination of yourself that this is not an accident, that's not something that just is here, that there is a God. Somebody much more powerful than I made me. He's the creator of all. He's the Lord over it all. By definition, being a God. And I love verse 25. This is where we left off last week. Verse 25. He's not worshiped with men's hands like all these idols that you have made with your hands that you worship. As though he needed anything. He doesn't need your idols. He gives. I love this phrase. He gives to all. Believers and non-believers alike. Life, breath, and all things. So what Paul is doing is, is meeting them where they are both physically and spiritually. They're human beings. They're created in the image of God. So if nothing else, is where we left off last week and we're getting ready to transition into what I really want to talk about today. It's so important for us as Christians to remember You know the God who is real. You know He is your Father. You know the God who can transform the lives of your neighbors, your family, your coworkers, people you are around. I was thinking yesterday, and we shared some. We always talk about at the help group. We had almost four hundred families. That it was crazy yesterday. It was just wild. I mean, it was. Whether you were upstairs doing clothes or you were downstairs in the gym, I looked at poor market one time. And he looked like he'd sweated. He'd been, he'd been working out for three days. He was sweating so badly, and I, and I went upstairs. And it was so hot, and those ladies were up there in their closet just sorting clothes and having. A, we, I was joking with. Uh, there was one man up there, and I went up there to help. And I I give him a box fan and put it in. That, that's, the, that's the kind of guy I am. I'm a giver. So I give him a box fan and put it in the closet where he said there's no air conditioning in there, and so I think it's been cool while they're sorting the clothes. And Don was up there, and Don's always up, he helps sort all the time. Well, he had turned the fan around where it was facing just him. So you got four or five ladies over here just sweating, you know, they're working hard. And I said, Don, don't you think we ought to turn the fan around and let the ladies have it? And he said, no. And I said, well, at least he's honest. So I turned the fan around and, and left and came back in a few minutes. Don had turned it back around on him. I said, Donald, why don't you take a break, and I'll, I'll do the men's part for a while and, and go downstairs and, and relax. But just think about all those people Jerry and I were sharing with earlier, and with so, and, uh, Dick Hunter and I talk about it. If you're one of those people that rolls the baskets to the cars and you, and with them and you pray with them, and I was helping one lady load the, the clothes in her car yesterday, and, and, just, and you ask them if you can pray for them, and it, it, it will break your heart, some of the things they share with you. And the one thing I keep being reminded of as I do that, no, two things. Number one, how, how blessed I am, how good God has been to me in a, in a material way. But beyond that, far beyond that, and more importantly, is I know the one who can free them from whatever bondage they're in. And I love to pray with them and just, it's funny, I've joked with them you before, with, uh, told you guys before, if, I'll tell them I'm the pastor of the church and they just light up. They think my prayers are more significant than anyone else's. And of course they are, but I don't tell them that. I literally had one of our workers yesterday, there was a, there was a lady there that uh, uh, just found out she's sitting waiting outside the clothes thing to get her clothes in and go to her car. And someone had just texted her and her sister was dying. And she's out there. I was back in the closet. I didn't hear any of it. And she came and got me and said, you need to run out there and pray with that lady. I said, well, do we have anybody out there praying with her now? She goes, yeah, but that's not you. And I, and I you know, in a moment I said, okay, do I stop now and theologically straighten her out now? Or do I just let this go? Because the point is, see, you're a priest. If you're born again, you're a priest, a believer priest under Jesus Christ. You have direct access The whole book of Hebrews, this is what it's about. It's open to you. Boldly approach the throne throne of grace for help in time of need. Yes, God has a hierarchy where he puts people in leadership to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the point. The the saints are equipped to do the ministry. If you wait for the preachers to do all the ministry, a whole lot ain't going to get done because we're lazy. Just a lot of it ain't going to get done. Obviously, God calls all of us It's such a beautiful thing to understand. So Paul's saying to them, this God that you're seeking that you don't even know yet, he gives you the very life, the breath you have. Where'd it come from? He gave it to you. The good things that you have, like rain. You worship the God of rain. Let me tell you where that came from. The God, the sun God, the moon God, the harvest God. All the gods that you worship, all the great blessings that you have just by being a human being, your intellect. All that you are, all that you have, the capacity to earn wealth so that you can prosper is a gift from God, intellect. He said, that's a gift to humanity. Grace, just in general, a gift that God gives to those who want nothing to do with him. We're able to get up and walk and function and do life every day because God has created us. But beyond that, Paul then says, understand that this God, verse 26, now you get to your handout, the next blank, he's sovereign over all of this. He's in control of it. He's doing it for a reason. Because he loves you. You see, to to the Greeks, their gods were distant. They were on Olympus. They were out there. They were playing games. They weren't real. They weren't personal. Paul's saying, I want you to understand verse 26. This God, who's the creator and the ruler, the owner, he's sovereign. He's made from one every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. He's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. He owns history. History is about him and his plan of redemption. It's his story, the story of Jesus Christ. This one true God, the creator, he's also the God of history. He's the God of geography. You see, the Greeks thought they themselves were this special, superior, unique race of human beings, better than everyone else. And man, many times throughout history, has developed that mindset. Hitler, for example, with the Aryan nation knows that only certain groups are the ones that God is going to bless And what Paul wanted them to understand is this great God is beneficent. He loves human beings. He created all of them in his image to know him, to love him, to have a relationship with him. Not to be distant and out there and maybe if you sacrifice enough children or if you do this many things, maybe you can get that God on your side. Maybe God said, no, no, I love you. I've given you creation. I've given you capacity to emote, to think, your intellect. I've given you, we're going to see he's leading up to, I've given you the path to know me on a personal level through the one who I resurrected from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth, who is God in the flesh. Those are all gifts. You can't earn them. You don't deserve them. You you can't buy them. I'm a good God. I'm the giver of what's good. Paul's trying to get them step by step to that point. Who know who this God is. He's directing history, still is. One of my favorite passages of books in the whole Bible is the book of Daniel. And there's a passage in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar has been mocking God and I'm not going to go through the whole story, but he's the most powerful man in the entire world, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the one that went in and destroyed A.D. 685 or 605 to 585 B.C., went in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and the Israelites went into the Babylonian captivity. He was that king, most powerful man in the world. It's magnificent just to read Daniel as a book of story. Don't read it for prophecy, even though you, you can do that. Just read it as a story sometime. It's powerful, what God does. You see the hand of God. Everything they know is wiped out. Temple, Jerusalem, their land. they taken into a foreign land. And God in that process is doing some amazing things for that 70 years they spend in Babylon. One of the things he's doing is he's teaching humanity and history. That Nebuchadnezzar may be the most powerful man in the world, but I'll make him crawl around like a cow for a while he'll mock me but sooner or later that'll stop and not just Nebuchadnezzar but Darius, Belshazzar Belshazzar, Cyrus Darius, on and on king after king after king I'm going to let them understand I alone will survive I am the most high God So at the end of that time of Nebuchadnezzar, before it's beginning to translate to another king, Nebuchadnezzar, after God gets his attention, says the following words. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Remember, pagan, the most powerful man in the world. I lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me. God gave it back to him. I blessed the Most High. That's Daniel's God. I praise and I honor him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, unlike mine, Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom is from generation to generation, unlike mine, Nebuchadnezzar. All the inhabitants, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? What did Nebuchadnezzar learn? There are two great truths in the universe. That's four, Randy. There are two great truths in the universe. I've shared them with you before. You need to write these down. They're very powerful. There are two great truths in the universe. Number one, there is a God. And number two, you ain't it. You ain't it. You don't think people need to learn that today? Literally, what Nebuchadnezzar just said is what every point every man needs to, he or woman needs to come to in his or her life. I suddenly realized that the God of Daniel, and you'll see that throughout the book of Daniel, king after king after king, will say the God of Daniel, the God of the Hebrews, the God, the most high God, he is God. He is eternal. He's all powerful. I thought I was all powerful. Pharaoh of Egypt, he thought he was all powerful, wasn't he? God showed him otherwise. And again, history over and over and over again, God has a reminder. When I was growing up, in the 60s in particular, and into the 70s, we all thought Russia and the Soviet Union was just going to come over one day. I literally remember in 1960-something, having drills. In my in I went to Memphis City Schools in our little elementary school across the street from my house. I remember us having drills, what we were going to do when the Russians came and dropped nuclear bombs on us. You go out to the hall, you get up against this wall, and, then, and I'm thinking, and I wasn't too bright. If you drop a nuclear bomb, it don't really make a whole lot of difference does? <laughs> and I was terrified. It shows you how old I am. Years ago, when I got into youth ministry years ago, and I was doing youth volunteer work, you would always, they, they would do surveys, like you ask teenagers questions, and, you know, tough questions like, what color is your hair? And, no, you ask teenagers questions like, what's your number one fear in life? And my generation, and really the ones that followed shortly after me, you know what it was? Nuclear war. Nuclear war. Now people still fear that today, but not like we did then. We were convinced that there was just you know we weren't gonna. It, I, I remember my my grandparents in rural Riggin, Tennessee. And very few people in, in the universe know where Riggin Tennessee is. It ain't really there anymore other than the cemetery where my family's buried. But I remember they had a farm. And on their farm they had a root cellar. And my dad had made it clear. It's about 100 miles from Memphis. Where were we going when the Russians came? We weren't going to school and getting the hallway. Where were we going? Riggin Tennessee and getting the root cellar. Because it was way underground. That's what we were going to do. We had a plan. I didn't think it was going to work, but... It was my dad's plan, and I never questioned my dad too much because I like to breathe. Now, verse 27. So Paul says this God is God. Not like what you think. Not, if you create an idol, you make the idol who's God. You are. He said, let me explain to you the God who is out there, who is God, who is sovereign of all, created it. He gives to you all these incredible gifts. And I love verse 27. It's just beginning. To head to the conclusion, to close it now, verse 27, he says, This God has determined everything. He owns history, verse 27, so that they should man should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God has a plan, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets, Greeks, have said. We're also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, or he made us, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, like an idol, something shaped by art. And notice the last phrase in verse 29, very important. God is not like something man-devised. You know what's killing the United States of America spiritually, including in the church, is that we've decided that Morality is up to you. It's relative, moral relativism. I decide what's right, you decide what's right. There is no absolute moral power, even in the church. God says, no, I decide that. So here's what Paul is saying. That God who is sovereign, next point on your handout, he's near to us. He's not out there at arm's length, out there somewhere playing games with you. He loves you. He's near to you. Verse 27, the first word. So, that they should see. The reason that God has done all that he's done in creating and in giving and in empowering you as a human being, created in his image, totally different from the rest of the universe. The reason he's done all that is that we would be motivated, verse 27, to seek him. Hebrews 11 says, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He is there. Jeremiah 29 says, Thus says the Lord, When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. If you're serious, how did this all begin? Paul says, I see that you are very religious. Thousands of idols. You're seeking God. Let me tell you about him. And he proceeds to do that. So verse 27, look at it again. They should seek him. That's his goal for us, the human race, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. In other words, he wants to give man hope. Evil in our world, and there's a lot of it evil in our world, God wants to use to motivate us to do what? Seek him. Seek an answer. Simple example, all the adults and even the teenagers may understand. Just from history, on 9-11 when our Nation was terrorized by those planes flying into the Twin towers. What did everybody, politicians down to me and you, talk about for the next six weeks? We desperately need whom. God. Every church was packed. Let's pray. We need God to intervene to do something about this incredible evil whether it's on a a nationwide scale, worldwide scale like that, or just in our own personal life when we see horrific things that happen. Sometimes we reach a point. I just, I can't do anything about it. All I can do is pray. But here's what Paul wanted them to understand. That's the most important thing you can do. It's turn to the God who can be known, who has, he is omnipotent, He has the power, and he's in control over all. Trust him. Turn to him. Surrender to him. Doesn't mean the pain's going to go away, as we're going to see. In in Paul's life, when he gets to Corinth, after this, he's at his his wit's end, and he's like, I'm going to give up. Doesn't seem to be working. I'm going to give up. You know, who shows up and reminds him, God does. And he says to him, hey, Paul, it's my translation. Hey, Paul, I'm still here. I didn't go anywhere. I got stuff for you to do. I know it's tough. But I need you to do it. So Paul gets back up, gets back in the game, and guess what happens? He gets persecuted again and again. And again, no one except false teachers are ever going to stand up and tell you that if you trust Jesus, everything's good. If, if they're telling you the truth, it's exactly what Paul told Timothy. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, I'll let you finish the verse. You will suffer persecution. Mark it down. Paul called it a privilege. Suffer for the cause of Christ, for the name of Jesus. A privilege. Why? Because it draws people who are also suffering to a place where they could find an answer. When you're hurting, it's what Paul, he loves these people. He's trying to get them to understand. Your 30,000 gods are never, ever going to do anything for you. Why? Because they don't exist except in your mind. They cannot help you. But the God who's the creator and the giver of all good is also near to you. He put within you a vacuum that only he can fill. He wants you to seek him. He has hope for you that evil and pain would drive you to him because he will set you free. Does it mean it's all going to go away in this life? Of course not. But what it means is that your eternity will be set And you will be free. Psalm 145, the Bible says this. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. If you're serious about it, he's there. Look at verse 28 again. In him we live and move and have our being... I want you to stop for a minute and just dwell on that phrase. Meditate on that scripture for a moment. In him, we live, we move, we have our being. Now, he's not talking to believers. He's addressing a group of philosophers, truth seekers. And what's he saying to them? As a human being, you live, you move, you have your being, you are the offspring of God. In that sense, we are all God's children, but not in the sense of him being our father, in the sense of him being our creator. Here's what he's saying to them. This is so important in your life as a believer to understand in dealing with non-believers. There's an old great theological term. It's called the dignity of man. The dignity of man. When Jesus stepped out of eternity and came to the planet to die on the cross, what did he do? Excuse me, when God, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth to die for the sins of mankind, what did he become? A goat? A lamb? A sheep? What did he become? A human being. He became Jesus of Nazareth, the son of man, the Messiah, who was also the son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the one who spoke to Moses from the bush and said, I am the one who walked in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. That's the one who died on the cross for you. So what Paul is saying to these Athenians and what you need to say to your culture is, do you understand how special you are? Do you understand how much God loves you? Man was in rebellion against God, Romans 5 Even Even we were yet in our sins, Christ died for us. We were in rebellion against him. We wanted nothing to do with him. We spit on him. We mocked him. We beat him where well, you could not recognize his visage. Then they tortured him to death on a cross. And what does he say while hanging there, dying? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He loved his enemies. Taught us to do what? Love your enemies. Pray for those who hate you, expect to be hated. Why? Because they hated me. But don't give up. Love them. Share truth with them. Understand the dignity of man. Your number one enemy, I don't care who it is. Your number one enemy. Jesus died for them. Holds them in high esteem because they're created in his image. People who are lost act what? Lost. You should not be surprised by that. You should understand it because you were once as they were. You have experienced grace. You've been set free. You know what? Sometimes you act lost, don't you? I know I do. You ever sin? Well, we had a group of perfect people. Impressive. Of course you do. See, you could share with someone, I'm a sinner who understands forgiveness. I want to share with you how you can get there. How special it is. He's near. Verse 29. Therefore since we have the offspring of God we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. In God we live, move and have our being. And he quotes their own poets. Epimenides Who was that author of the unknown God thing we talked about last week? He quotes him. See the hand of God? Quoting their poets. Your own poets have said, he quotes Aratus and Cleathenes. we are his offspring. That's a quote from a Greek poet. The point being, Paul was saying, "You're, you're seeking God. He's right here, he's right there. In verse 29, we're the offspring. We can't believe that he's like just an idol that we've made. So here's the summary point of that, and then we're going to close with point three. Only Christianity, whether it was then or now. You just got to study comparative religions, philosophies, and I read that stuff all the time. Only Christianity answers the three great great questions every man has about origin, purpose, and destiny. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? The person of Jesus Christ answers all of those. The one true God answers those. Philip Yancey Incredible book on grace said this the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge no strings attached seems to go against every instinct of humanity the Buddhist eightfold path the Hindu doctrine of karma the Jewish covenant and the Muslim code of law each offers a way to to earn approval only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional he can't earn it For God so loved the world that he gave. Finally, number three on your handout. Paul meets them where they are eternally. He says, now let's close the deal. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, one of the philosophers, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. He wants to sum it up. He wants them to understand If you remember when we started looking at this, that Paul went into the synagogue and in the marketplace and he preached Jesus and the resurrection. So now he brings them to that point. Since time began, God has revealed himself to man through his greatness, through his generosity, creation. Specifically now he's focusing on grace. And he says, verse 29, he's commanded men everywhere to repent. Repentance. Times of ignorance God has overlooked. He's been patient. He's showing us grace. He says, but now, has it judged us yet, but now, since Christ's advent, he judged him for the sins of mankind. And we're responsible do we respond to the truth, to the gift. He commands us. You want to know this known God? You repent. Look what he does for you in verse 31. He commands repentance and he gives to you righteousness. He's appointed a day, verse 31, in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained. And he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. He commands repentance. If you do not repent, you will face the judgment. The wrath, because he placed the wrath on the back of the man he raised from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth. Took the wrath, that's called propitiation in scripture. He took the wrath so I don't have to take it, and I can be declared righteous in Christ. Jesus is the standard by the man he ordained. In Romans chapter 2, Paul would later write this. Do you despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God, all that we've talked about, leads you to repentance. And by raising Jesus from the dead, he proved that he's exactly who he said he was. God in the flesh. Jesus' sacrifice. Now why is this important? For a lot of reasons. For a lot of reasons. Because... What we have to share is unique. People need to hear it. Everybody has a concept of God. Think they know who Jesus is. Maybe. Maybe not. Philip Yancey in that same book wrote these words. It strikes me as genuinely good news that we are creations of a loving God who wants to, us to thrive not random byproducts of a meaningless universe. That God entered our world and demonstrated in person that nothing, not even death, can separate us from God's love. That the story of Jesus has this main theme for God so loved the world that he gave. That human existence will not end with the imminent warming of our atmosphere or the gradual cooling of our sun. And my particular destiny will not end with death. That God will balance the scales of human history not by karma, but by grace, In such a way that no one will be able to accuse God of unfairness. He is the righteous judge. What we have to share is truth. Sets you free. It gives you a different perspective on life. In a few moments we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. I just want you to meditate on the body and the blood of Christ. And I want to share a true story with you and then we're going to do that. A man named Luther Bridgers was born in 1884 and he began preaching at age 17 he died in 1948 at the age of 64 he was a pastor and an evangelist in the south he also did mission work in Belgium Czechoslovakia and Russia he also wrote songs and he wrote an old hymn that many of you will remember I'm not going to sing it because God is good But it goes like this. There is within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Fear not, I am with thee. Peace be still in all of life's ebb and flow. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing. Keeps me singing as I go. You know the song, don't you? Luther Bridgers wrote that song sitting on the front what used to be the front porch of his house. He came home from an evangelistic meeting and his house had burned down and his entire family had been killed. He sat down in front of his house and wrote those words. That's not normal. That's not man. That's knowing who your God is. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing. Keeps me singing as I go. That's what we have to share with people. That's why this is so important. Not just another option. There are thousands upon thousands of options. God lets man choose. Because he's a loving God. But the answer is Jesus said I'm the only way. And you know what? He's the only way because he is God. You bow your heads, please. As I said, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together.